0: Other times I'd be in a piano bar like in Norway, which where the Bruce Springsteen comes to mind, where I learned that song, The River, because I would show up to these piano bar gigs in different countries. And that country would have certain types of songs that the people liked. And I, when I'd show up in that country, we'd have like a meeting. Okay, what's the deal with, the, with these young kids or this crowd? What kind of things are they really into? And I'd have to learn certain songs in certain places, whether it was Japan or whether it was Scandinavia, et cetera. And so on those, you wouldn't really hear me play because they didn't want to hear, they wanted to hear their favorite songs. You were a human jukebox and somewhat of an alcohol salesman.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Bruce train, though I'm sure he will come up, as he often does. I have my guest, Rick Delarado, and I can't wait to talk to you. We've already spent a few minutes visiting. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much. Tell us a little about yourself.
0: Sure. Where would I start?
1: That's the thing. I could go all the way back to the beginning or I could start in the middle. Um, We will start at the beginning in a minute. So for now, do your elevator pitch.
0: Really, basically what I am is someone who had a musical upbringing. I became a professional musician and I traveled around the world, played all kinds of music in all kinds of bands Played quite a few Bruce Springsteen songs in pop bands and wedding bands and Top 40 bands. And at some point, I got to a situation where I started to do my own records, were, which were more along the jazz line, because I was a creative improviser, and there's the piano has so much to offer in the jazz idiom. Then 9-11 came, and basically, I started to do something called Jazz for Peace where I felt like I could take my music and out what my beliefs were as a person, which was that music and the arts could help people. It could heal our country. It could heal our world. It breaks through divisions that people have. It breaks through barriers of language and creed and culture and religion, and it reaches people in a profoundly positive way. And then if I use it to help outstanding causes Now I'm reaching all the people that outstanding cause is helping. So it's a really bizarre thing where it became a personal dream come true coming from just a horrific tragedy that I happened to witness less than a quarter of a mile away on the roof of my uh, lower east side building where I was living in a five floor walk up on the morning of 9-11. So from the most bizarre day of my life came a poem called jazz for peace which led for the uh, this wild opportunity for me to combine my my talents with my the things i had learned from the arts and culture which was that we could really solve a lot of our problems just with the arts and culture and and helping outstanding causes so it's been a quite a journey
1: that, I, I can't wait to dive into that. I always like to start at the beginning, though. Rick, you mentioned you grew up. Where'd you grow up? And was there music in the house? Was well, okay. there music a lot?
0: Very good question. Yeah, because I I grew up in I grew up in upstate New York, and so that was a part of the the middle class and all that. And the whole thing about the the Bruce Springsteen thing is really where is. He was a real middle class blue collar sort of attraction during a time when some problems started to happen with the middle class. And so I grew up there. My parents were—they both had musical backgrounds. My grandfather was really the one. He came over—he came over from Italy with nothing but an accordion and a wine press—and was legendary as a musician during the bootleg era back in the 20s, where that was one of the Roaring Twenties, and. Um, My father played the French horn. My mother played the organ in the church, that kind of thing. So when a piano came on Christmas Eve, I thought that Santa had something to do with it. And I started to try to learn it on my own. And it just became a situation where I sensed a silent sort of thing. This piano, if you want to explore that piano, we're we're not going to get in your way, kind of thing like that. So it was a safe place for me. And I just thought it was so fascinating, the piano. It's just Unbelievable! I felt like I was, with my classical lessons, I was channeling composers in the 1800s. And at the same time, I could also connect with the music on the radio that I was growing up with. And I could just do my own little exploration. So there was a lot to it. The next thing I knew, though, I was playing professionally. And I did have to quit the only job I ever had, which was uh, paper route.
1: So... Did you feel, was there a calling? The way I, you're hearing it, it sounded like the, the piano spoke to you, right? There was this need. Did it come natural to you?
0: They said I had talent. It's quite, it couldn't be possible because I had my grandfather who was like someone sure. I really admired looked up to, but then he, he had talent through his kids. And my father was a talented classical French horn player. My mother did play quite well. She never made a big thing about it, but she played darn well. She would accompany my father on the piano, on the orchestra. Like She would play the orchestra part to the Mozart horn concertos. And she played in the organ in the church. So I would have to say there was quite a bit of musical talent from that aspect of it. I did never really look back once I started hearing like the joy that came from dancing around with my grandmother and aunt to the Beatles and stuff like that. I was that looks like something I could get behind as a grown up, which most other things didn't look so good to me. Like I was worried about being a grown up. And having to give up things that I liked, but I was like, if I was a grown up bringing joy to people through music, I think that could be a good transition from childhood, which I enjoyed not having to be a grown up.
1: So, did you go? Are you classically trained?
0: I am. Because what happened was, I was trying to learn the piano on my own, and I got someone told on me or something, and then they, you know, started with me with lessons. So now I had a classical teacher. I didn't, you know, I didn't really. Necessary. I didn't ask for it, let's put it that way, but since I had it, I thought I would, you know, respect the fact that they were doing that. And then when I started to play that music, I was like, man, that stuff is, there's something behind that, it's Chopin, and these are some great people. So I couldn't ignore that, but I did want to get to pop music and the music my friends listen to and all that stuff. So I had three things going on. I had my own ex- personal exploration. Then I had the music on the radio when I started playing in bands and stuff, and then I did have the classical thing, which was I sensed was a more time-honored way to really become a master of an instrument.
1: I've been listening to a lot of interviews with Jason Isbell. He's my new musical obsession, and he talked about he just loved playing the guitar. Like, it was never practice for him. It just, he just loved playing. So it sounds a little bit like that to you, like it didn't matter to you whether it was classical, whether you were trying to pick up a pop piece from by ear, you just loved playing.
0: Yeah, I felt like I was following a a path. I felt like I was I felt like there was a rudder to my ship when I was Okay. musically. Do you know what I mean? I sure. felt like it had a rudder to it. it was, there was a journey going on here. Whereas uh, uh, the other stuff, I was just flailing around. I didn't really sense. It would have been fun to maybe be a professional uh, athlete or something like that. I was looking. The, the music thing, I felt like I needed to do it. I just felt like I wasn't gonna. That was essential. That was necessary, the musical growth.
1: Did you study officially or when you went to school? Yeah,
0: I eventually got accepted at the New England Conservatory of Music. There was a few music schools that wanted me to go there as I got in that time where you choose a school and all that. And I was offered quite a good, quite a scholarship in Miami, but I did sense that Boston was an opportunity for me on a lot of levels. They had a jazz program there. They had a classical program that I was accepted into, but they also had a city that had quite a musical a music scene so I just figured I don't know I ended up going there and it was challenging it wasn't the party that Miami would have been I don't know if I don't know if that would have been the best thing for me who knows six and one half a dozen of the other I figured Boston was a great place for me to really grow as a musician there was no doubt in my mind
1: when did you start performing for other people
0: my homeroom teacher, like I said, I, I had this paper route and I was getting ambitious with that. But then my homeroom teacher wanted his sons played guitar. He had two sons played. Maybe one played bass, one played guitar. I can't remember. But he wanted me to play in their band was playing the school dances. So I, I joined that band. Now I'm in that band. Then there was a grown up band that was going to sneak me in and out of wherever they were going to go, private parties, weddings, bars, whatever, they had jobs. And they were going to sneak me in and out. And they, they were like, don't worry, we'll pick you up, we'll drive you home. And they won't throw you out, whether you're underage or not, because there'll be no keyboard player if they do that. So I had that thing going on. And then my mother was like, she wanted me to take over for her at the church. And then that was the end of my only job, my only other job, I had to give up the paper routes.
1: did one of the things I'm smiling at is there is a local guy here in Dallas that is a pretty well known in fact he's a Texas Hall of Fame broadcaster. He's done mm-hmm. sports talk for years, but he also was in a lot of bands in the 60s. Oh. and and he still plays like in a, a Tom Petty tribute band and so he does. but when he was in high school, and by the way, I laughed, because they'll say, why did you not watch this TV show? And he'll say, because I was in bands and stuff. The exact same phrase you just used, right? And I didn't watch Star Wars. I was busy playing in bands and stuff. But he tells the story that Stevie Ray Vaughn showed up to try out for his band. Wow. This was when Stevie was very young. Mm-hmm. And the joke, the other co-host is that... You said he wasn't good enough to be in your band, right? Because they didn't hire him. And when he gets them to quit picking at him, he says, the reality is we could tell this kid was miles ahead of what we were. But him being 15, it was just going to be too damn hard to get him into bars where we were playing. The logistics wasn't worth the headache right and but it's a funner story if you go oh no you said stevie ray vaughn wasn't good enough for your band did were you ever tempted to do something besides music for a living rick
0: i can't really say i was i was into things i was interested in hobbies i love sports i love skiing to this day i love playing basketball i didn't really see myself Getting in the NBA. If I thought I could get in a professional sports team or something like that, that might have been something that I would have considered. Music is so encompassing, as as that radio announcer was alluding to. It can really, it can really take up a lot. I love acting, for example, and now I do some acting. I actually did a scene for somebody just a couple of days ago. I an agent called me and wanted me to do a scene playing a club owner. And I had to do the scene on the, on the thing and send it. And I have an acting resume because of that. But only in the last few years have I been able to entertain acting because that can be a 24-hour-a-day thing, dealing with auditions. So you have to make choices. And I felt like music I had to do and the other things were optional. And if I could do them with music or I could squeeze it in, that would be fine. But the music thing, it's it really is a lot. It's a handful.
1: Dude. You mentioned writing. When did you, was that something that was always there or did that come later as you were learning to that you decided, I want to write music myself?
0: I was, right from when I was starting to learn the instrument, I wanted to figure out the piano on my own. When I very first started, I wanted to figure it out all by myself. That never left me and there's something compositional to that even to improvising where you're when you're trying to do something or all it's like a it's like a communication between you and the instrument that's almost sacred and it's a composi- it's it's compositional in nature so there was a compositional element to me and i would win strange little awards like at a summer music camp i was voted most creative and when right. i was in, college and I did my undergraduate in piano performance a well-known composer in that school mentored me and he said listen I can get you scholarships if you want to stay you could do a master's in jazz composition there was people recognizing my compositional skills
1: when did you or if if we had to put a label on during that part of your career what kind of musician were you
0: I wanted to play all kinds of music, one, because I liked all kind of music, but also just because I felt like I had the best chance to make a living in music if I could play anything. So yeah. I was very happy to play anything and everything. And when I was in school, I was playing gigs all the time, every night with this kind of band, with that kind of band. After a while... I got to the point where I needed to. I realized I'm never gonna really get too far in jazz unless I narrow it down and just become a jazz artist. And then I had a problem where I sang, I improvised, and I composed. And I was never in completely in my element as a sideman because I was supporting whatever that thing was. Sure. So I was like, no one's really gonna hear me in a full context unless i become a band leader so now i started to do my own records where you could hear my compositions you could hear me improvising and you could hear me doing vocals and stuff like that so otherwise i was doing a mix of things a wild mixed bag sometimes i'd be playing in a a a jazz band a, a jazz fusion type of band where they wanted they were featuring my compositions other times i'd be in a band backing up a vocalist where I was being featured as a improviser. And then other times I'd be in a piano bar, like in Norway, which the Bruce Springsteen comes to mind where I learned that song, the river, because I would show up to these piano bar gigs in different countries and that country would have certain types of songs that the people liked. And I, when I'd show up in that country, we'd have like a meeting. Okay, what's the deal with, the, with these young kids or this crowd? What kind of things are they really into? And I'd have to learn certain songs in certain places, whether it was Japan or whether it was Scandinavia, etc. And so on those, you wouldn't really hear me play because they didn't want to hear. They wanted to hear their favorite songs. You were a human jukebox and somewhat of an alcohol salesman.
1: First off, Max Weinberg does that currently, right? He tours with the juice box that they do. You had teased that you had something ready for me. And if this is a good time, why don't we do that based on, because based on what you just said, I think that's a great transition. If you could do this, then we'll come back and talk some more.
0: Okay, that sounds great. So now here's uh, the example. So I did show up, like I was in... Like I said, I've been a lot of places as a piano bar entertainer. One of the places was Oslo, Norway. So I get to, uh, what happened was, I, this is a crazy story now. I'm in New York. I had come to New York to, to, to play. And I'm, I'm playing in a club in New York, in Chelsea, right on 8th. It's a really cool hotspot. And they had this guy who was blind, a black blind guy named Teddy. He was upstairs, so they had him upstairs. Then downstairs, they had me and my girlfriend at the time alternating with this other piano bar entertainer named Nathan, Nate. So Nate, as time goes on, he's telling me that he's got some Scandinavian girlfriend and do I know any agents? Because he knew that I had been traveling to other, doing these kinds of things. I give him the name of an agent and he ends up, months later now, he comes to me and, and, and he had found some other agent or whatever. And he said, listen, here's the thing. Uh, I found somebody who wants to bring me, but he wants to bring all of us. I said, what are you talking about? He said he wants you and he wants Teddy. So this is the craziest thing now. Some agent in Oslo, Norway, took me, Nathan, and the upstairs guy, Teddy, and brought us all the way to the capital of Norway But in the same proximity of each other, where basically in the middle of Norway was a piano bar called Barons that had an upstairs where they put they put Teddy, they put Nathan downstairs, and then right next to it was another piano bar, and they put me in that one. So we were moved directly, they just moved us in the same proximity. Like seven thousand miles away. I don't know how far, how many miles. I'd have to look that up. But whatever thousands of miles it was. When I got there, we had to figure out some songs, and one of the songs was like they really liked this song by Bruce Springsteen called "The River." So I had to learn it specifically for that gig. And I'm gonna, what I'm gonna do is play a little bit of what I do now. I'm just gonna make something up as an improviser, and then I'm gonna lead into this short, little bit shortened version of the of the river, so I can fit both of these in.
1: Sounds perfect. Okay. That was beautiful, thank you. yeah, that was absolutely beautiful thank it is that is I have a couple of interesting stories about the river. One, I often wonder, is would they say the characters in the song is it a successful marriage? Mm-hmm. it's It's not a perfect marriage, but it is a successful marriage, right? Uh And in real life, his sister is still married to that. They're still married. I mean, that they yeah, that he based it on her to his and her and her husband are still married.
0: Oh, really? Okay. now, is this the same Mary that's in the song you're going to ask me about later? Don't know. See, Uh that's that
1: is one of the theories when we'll talk about it is Mary is a character that he speaks often okay and and there is are they all the same Mary's are and they no different Marys really about it
0: huh no, no. Ever- yeah,
1: and the other on a lighter note, mm-hmm. I was at a show in Nashville, and someone had a sign, and for a while, Bruce was taking sign requests, and someone said, It's my nineteenth birthday, play the river, oh. and we were like, you realize. It's not that happy of a song, right? This is not a, yay, I'm 19. But I love your version of it. I love the introduction. That was very well done. Very well done. Nicely done. Did you ever think about why in that section of Europe, that that song, they loved it so much?
0: There's a couple of things. One is that countries at that time... Okay, so this is a twofold thing because one is related to the lyrics of the song and the other one is related to just what was going on at that time. You like if you went to if you went to Japan, as I did, I would find out in Japan that Elton John wasn't that popular in Japan, but Billy Joel was. Why? Because the publishing companies had inroads at that country for that artist. Whereas if you go to another artist, the publishing company was in there. They weren't in there. So it was politics. They were able to get this guy's music into this country and that guy's music into that country. And certain artists were uh, definitely in uh, Norway, like uh, Neil Young was much more prevalent in in Scandinavia than he was in Asia for whatever reason. Nobody really would ever make a request for a Neil Young uh, song in Asia but they there was a, one or two of his songs that they really liked in in Scandinavia. The other thing was this song talks about see the problems that they had, so this song to me, they're young, they're enjoying life, and they're having a, they have these memories of the river, and then they get married, and then these problems come up and in the verse that I didn't sing because I did a shorter version. He screams about a problem with the economy. That problem with the economy, in other words, on account of the economy, he's having a problem. But that was a problem with a part of the economy that was the blue-collar worker, and that's related to NAFTA, it seems to me. And it seems to me that what resonated with this song with a lot of people was that he was calling out this NAFTA thing that was going on, where they were basically, corporations were outsourcing they were outsourcing jobs to cheaper places and they were screwing over the American worker because unless the American worker was willing to bend, they were go- weren't were going to be able to compete with third world countries where they were just have the workers with no rights and no pay in these third world countries. And that's what I think he was. And that's what was screwing up their marriage, because that's a big problem when you have
1: financial problems. Yes, absolutely. Right?
0: Because The thing is, he's already making a he's already making a compromise in the song he's making a compromise to get that job at the Johnstown company right that compromise for the love and all that but now that gets screwed up now he's making a compromise but the compromise he's making betrays him and what he was betrayed was to me he was betrayed by this outsourcing of jobs where these greedy corporations just saw a chance to make even though they had enough and even though the the worker was uh, was willing to work with them and give them enough record profits didn't matter they wanted a bigger record it was greed and the politicians were betraying the american people and the american middle class got betrayed
1: yeah and, and what i also think is interesting is that the the universal of there ain't much work because the economy this came out in eighty. Yeah. Can sing the it in the nineties. Yeah, but I'm just saying to this day mm-hmm. when he can sing that line, there are people that is universal because there's always problem in the economy if you are at that working class that and oh. you're right. The implication is I got a union car and a wedding coat right? Would our narrator have gone to college? Maybe. But he couldn't. He's now got a child on the way. He's got a wife. He has to depend, and therefore you put aside your dreams and put in other ones, and uh, which has that, you did sing that great line, is a dream alive that don't come true, or is it something worse? Right. And that That's is, yeah, just in there. Yeah. Um. I asked this when I have Springsteen fans on the podcast, so I'll ask you, Rick, if you can you remember when you first heard Bruce or his music, and what your thoughts were about this this singer songwriter
0: i basically in New York, there was a situation when I first came from Boston to New York, I brought a car, which was a nineteen sixty nine Chevy Biscayne. And that was a crazy car. It was like a, too big for to park in New York, but it was what I had. And I was able to play a lot of gigs, but a lot of the gigs were, I ended up getting this gig where I was basically, I was basically the weekend vocalist at this the singer piano player, but in a band, it was like a top 40 band that had a singer, but the singer was more a crooner and sang the 50s stuff and didn't really sing the top 40 stuff of the day and so I became that guy on the weekends when it was packed they wanted to hear the the, the songs and so I would sing the Born in the USA and some of these songs by Bruce Springsteen and I didn't think all that much of those specific hits but I saw that he had an appeal with this blue collar thing and you did see I did see it when I learned the river I did see the appeal that he had and of course there's a few other songs where he also brings that home I mainly was uh, heard about him mostly because he was he was it's weird because here he was singing about the blue collar people but he also was the corporate man in terms of the record labels some record labels there there were they would the record labels I found out later would choose maybe one artist when there were five competing bands and bury the other bands alive so that they wouldn't compete against each other and cause that one artist to lose his so Bruce was the man that the record labels were behind.
1: Did, I love the fact you mentioned earlier in the interview that you were diverse the same way like an investor divest his portfolio. You Mm -hmm. divested your musical styles so that you would be more accessible and employable. Talk to me a little bit more about that.
0: The thing is, once I started, once I quit my paper route, I was already making a living as a musician, even though I was a young kid and I didn't have to pay rent at my house. Yeah. But I was like, I am i don't, there's no sense in turning back at this level. I just, even though I'm going to school, I can, I had the ability to play in different settings. And the school had something called the gig office. And I, Made out like a bandit there, because when I got in there they people would post the they would post these gigs that people would call in from the city of Boston, and they would be like one person needed a wedding band, another person needed someone to play for silent movies, another person need all kinds of wild stuff that people needed, and I would go up and just nab those things, and I figured not only am I providing a service, but I'm also getting more experience as a versatile musician, and so I became a very versatile musician which allowed me to never really have to turn back. Now, the problem was that I kept growing as a musician, as an artist, and that became a problem because now I'm becoming more more able to play at a higher level, but then as you play at that higher level, the the audience gets smaller and smaller. When I was checking out some of Bruce's music. I was like, man, I was looking at like little Stevie or whatever. And I'm like, boy, that's not a very challenging gig to play. You're just playing these triads and rocking along. And that sounds like fun. I was except I was developing way beyond that and into a much more challenging situation where there's a much smaller uh, market and a much smaller people for that. Nevertheless, my artistic journey was going in that direction, just like you see with the writers, the, all, the the great writers and great composers. Mozart wrote like 52 symphonies and apparently got buried in a pine box. So, right, go figure.
1: Did so. You already mentioned going overseas. I want to get to Jasper Peace, but before I do that, let's. I want to just say if you have any stories about strange gigs to share with me, I would love to hear the, some of them.
0: There's so many, I don't know where to start, but one that came with the river was, I remember one time I learned the river and a few other songs that I needed to play for yeah. that, that thing. Like I said, there was a Neil Young song. There was a, I think there was a, a Bob Marley song in that mix. It was a handful of songs that you needed for this piano bar gig. And I remember doing a set in that piano bar and getting off the gig. And it was like late. I, probably, I think I played till three in the morning or something. And it was maybe one30 and I was just walking, I don't know, it was dark, and I just felt another hand in my hand. Okay. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And I look over, and it's a girl, a rather young girl, old enough to be in the bar. Now, not, and I wasn't breaking the law or nothing, but yeah. she was old enough to be in the bar, but she was a young, very attractive girl. She was the kind of girl that could put her hand in someone's hand and get away with it. No one's... <laughs> nobody is good yeah no one is gonna no one's complaining yes no one will ever complain when this girl puts her hand in your hand that's the bottom that's the kind of and there was this little downstairs where you could go down and then before you got to the restroom there was like a little makeout place or whatever and i just ended up and that's one of the that's one of the memories of the river was just that girl it brought back those memories and the funny thing was because i played so many gigs i was already had somewhat of a reputation as a jazz musician. So I was, yeah. they wanted me to meet the top jazz musician in Norway. Over there, they didn't really have to play all kinds of music in some of those other countries. If you were a good jazz musician, you were known in the country and blah, blah, blah. And there's this guy, I think his name was Håkon Graf or something. He was a serious jazz musician. And okay. we went out and stuff. And I just remembered he's asking me like, what do you do? I said, look, I do all kinds of gigs because New York city, it's hard, really hard to, you got to play everything. You got to do all kinds of stuff. You can't just, and he knew that too, but I was just trying to tell him the difference and we get back to the flat that they gave me Yeah. Get back there and there's a body crumpled up by the door. And it's that beautiful girl who had put her hand in my hand and she just Decided to sleep next to my door until I got back there. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And so I just remembered, like, what must this guy be thinking? Like, he, cause that's just so beyond his, you know what I mean? His like conception. And even so it was funny. It was like we got back. And I opened the door and she just got up and she just walked in the flat and just went over into my room and just went and crawled into the bed while me and him hung out finishing up our conversation or whatever in the living room. And I was just trying to think of what must be going through his mind because (laughs) it's got to be so foreign to his life in the more, the more the jazz and the more serious
1: music world. You know what I mean? And, and you're like... In the rock star world. And you're trying to go, oh yeah, this happens all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. That's what I was wondering, what's
1: this guy be thinking? And oh, so, that's so great. Yeah. So, I... Thank you. That's a perfect story. It, we're going to try not to have give anyone whiplash, but you said that Jasper Peace was born on 9-11. Take me through a little bit of that. My story was, I... I had been having a lot of headhunters and recruiters call me asking for me to, are you interested in a job? Are you interested in a job? I had, I reached out to my wife in her job. They had people, had them do professional resumes. A service had done a professional resume. So I asked Linda, I said, do you mind if I pay to get a, resume done? She goes, no, I think it's a great idea. I had gotten a phone call and they said the resumes are ready to pick up. I said, okay, great. I'm driving to pick up and I stop at an Einstein's bakery. The, one of the chains picked up a bagel and some coffee and I'm in the car and I'm listening to the sports station and they talk about, yeah, it sounds like there's been a plane hit the tower. And we're like, oh, and then I heard them say, Oh, that's way too low. That's not an accident. So I get to, and it was a the person working on the resume. It was, they worked out of their home. So it's on the TV. And he hands me the resume. And we neither one of us are in the mood to look at it. But for the longest time, my resume was Jesse Jackson, 09, 11, 2001, right? Because he had dated it. Wow. And so then, of course, the economy went to hell and I no one was calling for jobs <laughs> after I'd paid for a resume. And I'm living in Dallas, Texas, and the world is shocked. And, and in a lot of ways, I think we're still feeling the repercussions of that. So you're there in New York. Tell me the story. Talk to me about that and where we went.
0: Well, on the 9-10, on the 10th of that, the day before... Uh, I was in a situation where this is something that happens, maybe not in every city, but in New York it'll happen, where photographers or amateur photographers can just go up to someone that they think might be famous or something someday or whatever, and just say to them, hey, do you want some pictures, and I'll keep the negatives or whatever, and the person will, of course, say yes, and some photographers have gotten quite, they got their start in photography, or their pictures became well-known. Linda McCartney is a perfect example. She was Linda East. But she took pictures of Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix walking, just walking around with their guitar in Tomka in uh, Washington Square Park when they were nobody really. And she had the pictures. And, And then next thing you know, she's a famous photographer. And then she met Paul McCartney. Anyway, this woman was, for whatever reason, she was taking pictures of me and giving me the negatives. And she took pictures of me. And if you ever see the CD called jazz for peace, it's a CD. That picture is a picture that she took of me in front of a dumpster In the East Village on the 10th of September. So she took a picture on the 10th. And basically, the next morning, I just got a phone call. It was just a phone call in the morning. And I just, the phone rang and I answered it. And it was her. And she said, I'm so sorry. I I don't know who to call. She was frazzled. I said, well, what is it? No problem. You don't matter. She said, we spent some time yesterday. blah blah blah. No problem. You can call me. What's going on? And she just says the situation where... Her son or uh, her boss talks to his son every day. And on this day, the son called the boss and said, hey, something happened. He was in the other building. Mm-hmm. Something happened in the other building. And what should he do? Should he go down? And finally, they talked and he said, you know what? Why don't you just leave that building just as a precaution? He never saw his son again. And oh, yeah, no. and she was frazzled. She she didn't really know that he was never going to see him again. But she was just at that point, she was privy sure. to work. Going on, she calls me, and I said, "Listen, let me just go up because I'm on the fifth floor. Walk up, I'll just go up on the roof. It's right over here. I'm just three steps away, right up on the roof. And I just let me just see what it is. What could it be? Come on, some yeah. Is cat? What could it possibly be? I went up there, and that I felt like I walked into a movie because I had the luxury box office view. I was less than a quarter of a mile away, and Mm -hmm. I was on a roof, and I was direct sight, and it was just insane. So. Out of that came a poem that I wrote, and I called the poem Jazz for Peace. And that's where everything took a life of its own, because now I have this life-changing event that I have something that's unique from my, from, because you don't really realize that, that you saw something that so few people saw to your, you know what I mean? The rest sure. of the Everyone saw it on, but I saw it like incredibly. So I experienced it in a way that only so few people did. At that time, I thought everybody did. Now you realize the whole world, out of the whole world, you were one of the, le- the tiny group of people that actually saw it at this. Yeah. So I had a poem, the words came out of me. And what do you do with a poem? I have no idea. But the as you mentioned, the whole country was shut down. And when it opened up, I happened to be the headliner at a jazz festival in Savannah, Georgia, where there was going to be 8,500 people. And I was the headline act, like I said. So what do, you, what do I do next? I guess I'll read that poem. Because that was the first thing that people could go to since 9-11 was in, in Georgia was that festival. So they went to that festival, and that was the first time they were with other people. And I read the poem. And so the poem reverberated... And it was like one thing after another. So now I write, I write the poem on 9/11. I read the poem on whatever it was the 27th or 26th, and then I put the poem to music by the next high-profile gig. And that one ended up with the press putting Delorado starts out with jazz piece. Then even before that, there was a reporter who called me and wanted me to read the poem. And then in during that time, I'm just talking to him off the top of my head, and I just happened to say. Honestly, if we would just embrace our greatest qualities, creativity, artistry, intellectuality, if we embrace our greatest qualities as a species, we would have a better chance at avoiding the behavior that leads to destruction. I just said off the top of my head, I wouldn't have even remembered I said it, except it ended up in this article. That got lifted. By famous quotes websites. And next thing I know, I'm on hundreds of websites with this famous quote. If you Google Rick Delarada's famous quote, this thing comes up in every language. So that's going on. The the press is writing about this piece I wrote. And so now I figure let me play a few concerts around town, just call them Jazz for Peace. And then that led to a benefit concert series. It then eventually the United Nations, where I had asked my manager, listen, why don't you just show them who they, I am, go through the prompts and see if they would let me bring Unite Israeli, Palestinians and American musicians, which I was able to do at the United Nations. Since It was one thing, another thing. And it just, like I said, it was almost like the same way that music was a trajectory for me. I felt like there was a rudder on my ship. I now had a new rudder. Maybe I had a cruise ship rudder at this point. But I had a rudder on my rudder, is what you might want to say.
1: By the way, I I did just quote and you're right. If you put yeah. your name in that quote, pop crazy. Right? It just and you're like, what? Okay.
0: And I'll be honest with you, for years I thought I must have done something to have that happen. I must have sent that quote to someone or I did some because we try so hard. We are always trying hard. And all that trying is good. But the bottom line is that had not that was just a you know, a crazy thing where I said something and it got lifted and I had nothing to do with that. I didn't know about, uh, famous quote sites. So I was yeah. gaslighted into thinking I had something to do with it, but the, when I, you know, when I really had to think of it, I'm like, I never, I don't re- I never even knew I said the thing in the first place. So it's a, just a phenomenon. It's a phenomenon unexplained.
1: So your comment is Going around. So what about you? What was the thought of getting a little more organized and doing jazz for peace? Talk about.
0: Here's what happened. Basically, I was visiting a roommate of mine on the Upper West Side. Oh, uh, an ex-roommate. that He had a rent control apartment, and mm-hmm. the reason I ended up in his place is because he wanted a he needed a piano player, and he figured uh he'd give me some cheap rent in his rent control apartment. And so that was before I ended up uh, down on the Lower East Side. But anyway, that was my first apartment in the city when I first came down. I was in Jersey City. That was this. So I'm visiting him, and he's like, yeah. There's this uh, place around the corner. Why don't you check it out? It's a youth hostel. And it's called Jazz on the Park. But if the guy's name was Jazz, J-A-Z. Yeah. I go over there and I go and I'm like, hey, how would you guys like a little jazz maybe in your basement? Because I realized, they didn't realize, but I realized all I got to do is put another Z on this guy's name. And I've got, it looks like, and not only that, but the street had, 106th Street had also been named Duke Ellington Boulevard. So now I had this venue for my little jazz for peace concerts. And then I'm like, why don't I do something philanthropic living up to the words of the poem and help a few outstanding causes in the city. I'll do a benefit concert for a few outstanding causes in New York City. And that just ballooned because I didn't realize there were over 60,000 nonprofits in New York City. Now, separating the, the real ones from the fake ones was a whole nother thing, which Jazz Repiece ended up doing. But like I said, it, these doors just opened where that I didn't even know. And I started doing the benefit concerts in New York. And because of that venue, I was able to do a lot of them just down in the basement. People say, where's the concert? I said, it's over at Jazz on the Park. What's Jazz on the Park? It's over on Duke Ellington Park. And then they thought that, it was them that didn't know what was going on, not me, because it was I was using everything lined up it's on Duke Ellington Boulevard. It's called Jazz on the Bar. in all honesty, it was a dingy little basement of a youth hostel, but I got somebody at Beethoven Pianos to like again sponsor a piano. They moved a piano down there for me to do the concerts, and then what happened was I get a call. Presidential candidate Dennis Dennis Kucinich is visiting New York, and on his itinerary, he wants to come to a Jazz for Peace concert. So it became like a it became like a tourist attraction. Wow! And I'm like, does this guy know that I'm in a basement of a? He didn't know, but I was like, nothing I could do. I'm just gonna have to fake it. but mm-hmm. then I started doing the concerts all around New York, and the next thing I know, I was doing like my 200th or whatever, and they're reading this thing, and it's all about me. While me and the band are over on the side having some hors d'oeuvres or whatever. And they're making these announcements before we come on to do the concert. And they're reading this big proclamation. I'm like, what the heck? Will you guys be quiet so I can hear this? They wouldn't shut up. I just had to go and listen. Because it sounded like it was about me. The other guys in the band, they don't. They're just shooting the crap and having fun. Let me hear this. And it turned out it was from Mayor Bloomberg. And it was a big letter that he wrote proclaiming new york commends all blah 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 i'm like could you where did you guys get that oh yeah the mayor he loves what you're doing here take this letter and it was just so then i started to realize when i would hit these milestones i would get these letters when i hit my 500th concert it was in chicago and i got a letter from barack obama then i started doing these all over the world And I would get a letter from the prime minister of Kenya when I went to Africa. And so people started to show. And a lot of them were referring to my United Nation concert, which got no press. I did everything I could. I sent out press releases. I did nothing to get that famous quote except say something off the top of my head that ended up in an article. The press, the, for the United Nations, I said, press release everybody. Nobody showed up. Nobody cared about peace. But as the Benefit Concert Series resonated, then they started to notice and that in their eyes, that was a significant cultural event that I did at the United Nations. And this thing yeah. I'm doing, has significance and it has. They started to believe what I thought originally. And that happens sometimes. And that's the way it is in the arts too. A lot of these great artists, whether it's Mozart or whatever, hey, unfortunately, it's not that they weren't great. It's just that the public took so long in, to, to come around that they were already dead by the time the public figured them out, came around. If you go to Vienna, funny, because I was on a podcast earlier today from Vienna. It's called Vienna Live. But if you go to Vienna, You'll see Mozart getting a gig that he qualified for in 1731. A joke, but right?
1: Sure, yeah.
0: Yeah. He qualified for the gig in 1731, but they didn't give it to him then. He died penniless. But now he's a big star in Vienna. So that's just these are just parts. These are just the the uniqueness, the unique crazy ride of our existence. But like I said, I was glad that I learned every kind of music. One, so that I could support myself no matter what and ride them, but also it makes you a better musician. It just Mm -hmm. makes you a better, more well-rounded musician to to be able to just do anything. I remember people, I remember someone calling me up, hey, listen, what do you got from, okay, listen, go into this club, they'll have a keyboard set up for you. It's a country band and just go in there and just walk on the stage. And just they'll have the charts for you, and just read their show, and then just walk out. Someone will hand you an envelope. I still don't even know the name of that band. I walked. <laughs> the place was packed with people. The people I made the band sound really good. I don't yeah. know who they are to this day. They could be a band that's famous now. I don't even know. They hired me to just go in and make them sound good, like it was a special gig, and they figured I was going to make them. I was going to soup up there. You know what I mean? Or they sure. needed need do that and my name came so all kinds of wild things like that i don't regret any of it
1: what's next i i know you're joining me on this podcast but what are you wanting to go what is the next step for jazz for peace and what's next for you career-wise
0: okay interesting you should ask because these podcasts okay so we got in a situation where It took 20 years, but after 20 years of me doing all these things with Jazz for Peace, all of a sudden, podcasting comes out, and people need content. And they look at my story, and man, it resonated. Now they get it. I don't know where they were before, or maybe they didn't even have podcasts back then. Who knows? But these podcasters like you guys are like, hey, and, and I love it because you have the freedom to choose what you want to do. It's a wonderful, right. for you. it's freedom of speech. I, I love the whole idea, but they're like, oh, we want, can you come on and we'd love to tell your story. And this is my desk that a lot of they they interview these podcasters at their workplace. This piano is my work. Sure.
1: This absolutely.
0: Work. Yeah. And yeah. they love the idea that I play something. And then again, as because I can play so many things, I can play something that's related to that podcast or that theme i was on a prince's fan club podcast prince and playing music playing different totally different music than what you heard today but anyway mm-hmm. so now i've done a lot of solo performing and to be honest with you up until before this podcasting role started i shied away from a solo uh appearance Because I just felt like I wanted my other musicians. I needed my bass player. I need my drummer. I like a horn. I love that. I love to play with the ensembles and all that. But through this podcasting thing, it's fascinating because there are some things that I can do breaking up the time and the tempo. I don't know if I did as much of it for you, but if you listen to some other podcast, listen to the one in Vienna, because that was for you. I wanted to do something special for your podcast, but for yes, thank you. he was he wanted something quite adventurous. And you'll hear me like like going in and out of time, doing things that the musicians couldn't do. So before it was a ham it was a hamstring because I couldn't do what my bass player and drummer could give me. But now, because I've been on over a hundred of these podcasts, this is like maybe the 120th podcast or something I've been wow. on. Wow. Yeah. And I can I'm doing things that Actually, they can't, they wouldn't be able to do with, I'm doing some unique. Sure. So I think it's leading to a situation like yesterday, where there was an arts and cultural event, and they thought it would be great if maybe I could finagle a way to do it. And I said, you know what, I could do your thing if you just have a piano and a microphone and I just come down myself, you know what I mean, rather than a situation where you know, my, some of the guys I play with are big names, and it would be, they wouldn't be, we wouldn't be able to amortize it. You know what right. I mean? So I was able to just go there myself, and they loved it. And so I think it's going to be a situation for a minute now where I take what I've grown, the musical growth from these podcast performances, and deliver those to audiences live. I think I see that as a possible thing next. And yesterday was an example of it. And that's on YouTube. Uh, they put like a couple minutes of it on YouTube okay. today. So it's, right. if you'll just see me. Basically, they announced me as they normally would with maybe whether even if I had an orchestra, but it was just me and making it happen.
1: So how about if someone wants more information, how do mm-hmm. they find it?
0: A great way to get in touch with me personally and with, to find out if you like Jazz for Peace, if, you know, the, the mission and, the, and what that's been going is as the simple email is just info at peace.org. And okay. of course, peace.org being the website, me personally, my website, rickdellarada.com. You have to be able to spell my name. But so those are easy ways. And I, like I said, email, that email, generic email address is just a great way okay. for someone to say, hey, I watched the Springsteen podcast and blah, blah, blah. And it could, I'd love for you to come out to, to play at our little thing because okay. I could come out solo and do that where I couldn't. Sure. Or they might say, Hey, we have this thing in the community that you could come and do a, a concert to, to support or something like that.
1: Okay. That sounds sure. great. Mm-hmm. What have I not asked you that I should have?
0: Wow. Jeez. I don't know. That's a good question. Just because you're in Texas I guess I could tell you a couple of the, something that maybe I could maybe think of something that I did in Texas. I've been to Dallas a few times and I've been okay. to Houston even more times. Sure. A bunch of times in Houston. The Houston thing is interesting because I used to play with a band called the Platters that were famous in the 1950s. Sure. And there was a woman from Houston on a cruise ship that remembered me from the Platters when oh, I Oh, how funny. On a ship and she kept following my career and when I started coming to Houston, her and her husband would meet me at the airport and pick me up and stay at their place and party with them all weekend and take me to my gig and you know hang out and all that stuff. So that was yeah. a cool, fun thing for Houston. The Dallas thing was cool because there was a few different organizations that I did with Jazz for Peace. And the last time I was in Dallas, it turned out a friend of mine who's a bass player, because North Texas State, has a well-known. I don't know if, you know if you know this, but they have this well-known. It's called the One O'clock Big Band or something. It's a world thing, yeah. jazz big. Band. Yeah,
2: and,
1: it's like the Five O'clock Jazz Band or something. But yes, sure. it is North Texas State has is, is considered one of the best music music schools in you the country, it. not just Texas. Yes, I do got know it. that. Yeah,
0: got it, a hundred percent. So what happened there was they. Get guys from New York to come down there because they will. You can lure a guy out of New York City down yeah. there because of that reputation. And there's right. a bass player named Lynn Seaton, bass player. And there's another guy, too. And they, there's two or three guys from New York. And he got, I think, the, drum, the the conductor from that. And he's a he's a professor there now and all that. And he put, like, a band together of those North Texas State guys behind okay. him. So it was me and the North Texas State guys, but actually, I knew the bass player from New York, and we had done gigs in New York, and we were okay. close friends and all that. So I had a blast the last time I was in Texas. To be honest with you,
1: we would love to have you back anytime. So that yeah, sounds let's, great.
0: Let's cross our fingers on. Yeah, you. exactly. We get that around. Maybe someone, maybe someone will check out your podcast. And hey, yeah. It could be, like I said, it could be a Jazz for Peace thing like I've been to Texas a few times where we help an outstanding cause through our Benefit Concert Series. And like I said, it's info at org. Or they could say, hey, we have this little music fest and we'd love for you to just sneak in here and play. We'll we'll provide you with a keyboard and a mic and just come down and, and be one of the acts.
1: That sounds awesome. I love that. All right, Rick, this has been so much fun. Thank you for the musical treat. I've loved hearing your version of The River. I'm going to I'll include you, the link to your website on the show notes. I'll include your email address. But before I get out of here, I end every podcast with a merry question. Okay. Jay Armstrong is a honors English teacher from he is now retired. But when he was teaching, he would give his class his honors English class, the lyrics, the Thunder Road, and he would ask them to read it. They talk about the themes. The choice of lyrics that Bruce uses. And then he would ask his class, does Mary get in the car at the end of the road song? That is your question. Does Mary get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? We my
0: answer to that, which I had ready before we came on the show, but you've you altered it a little bit yourself. But it, it boils down to basically based on what my review was. I'm gonna say if, and we don't know for sure. If that's, it's the same Mary from the river, if it's the yes. same Mary, uh, then I'm going to say yes, if it's that Mary. But then yeah. again, you said you, it's no one has ever, he he's never let, Bruce has never let the cat out of the bag as to if it's the same Mary, right? Yeah, no. That's, and that's
1: and it. so I think that's a perfectly, that's a great answer, right? Of um, Because of course she gets in the car because then they wouldn't get married in the river. So yes. Of course she gets in the car. That is great. Thank you again for being part of this. I, I just loved visiting with you. Listeners, go check out the website. Any final thoughts? And then we'll get you out of here.
0: I'm actually psyched for people to hear because I there's your, the music on your podcast is so unique because of your theme. So I'm actually looking forward to sharing me doing a Bruce Springsteen song with people who had I'm telling you never heard me play that.
1: Yeah, okay, I am really sorry. No what I,
0: heard that, And who the hell knows how long ago that was. Okay. Yeah,
1: what I'm going to do is actually I'm going to, I will, I'll put this episode out in about a month. But I think okay. as a clip, I'm going to cut out just the story and the, you playing it as a, and put yeah. that on YouTube as a a preview of the full discussion. So I'll try to do that by next week. I think that'd be fun.
0: Oh, that'll be a
1: blast.
0: That'll yeah. be fun. Yeah. So
1: once yeah. I have it, I'll let you know. Okay. All right. All right, listeners, thank you so much for listening. Check out Rick's website. Check out Jazz for Peace. Let's be kind. Let's be safe. And we'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking. Fan-thinking, joy-spreading, lyric-reading, story-sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listing Bruce. The theme for Set Listing Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission.